Theater critic Dan Sullivan of the L.A. Times writes, I'm not bothered when the audience applauds the scenery. Sometimes it's the only recognition the set designer gets. Audiences tend to take good set design for granted these days, but the set designer isn't just someone who bestows some more or less apt scenery around the stage. He or she creates a world for the play to happen in. The shape and the texture of that world will have a lot to do with the way the viewer perceives the play. A Midsummer Night's Dream in an Elfin Forest is a fairy tale. A Midsummer Night's Dream in a White Handball Court, as in Sally Jacobs' famous setting for Peter Brook's production, is a competition. Besides providing the play an imaginary landscape, the set designer marks off the space where the play will be performed, designs its playing field, if you will. A good set, then, is both practical and imaginative. No matter how complicated it is, it will make sense. And no matter how simple it is, it will have poetry. Sullivan says a good designer can find poetry anywhere, even in jail. And we can say with Sullivan, a good playwright can find poetry anywhere, even in a bathroom. And you'll see what we mean. Dan Sullivan is right as far as it goes when he suggests the set designer creates a world for the play to happen in. But what happens when there is no play, at least at the start? What happens when the set comes first and the playwright is challenged to create a story that suits that space? The set is even more powerful in that instance. Matthew Hinton is a writer of plays and poems, and he loves the magic a good set designer can wield to create a world, in Sullivan's phrase, and draw the audience in. But he's also fascinated by the conversation between the story and the set itself. And he explores that dialogue in a series of one-act plays in his new collection titled Playroom. Hinton tells us, while writing these plays, I wanted to consider how a room can drive the conversation, add to the conflicts, and sometimes even help close the emotional distance between characters. For example, the master bedroom reveals the darker edge of a spouse's yearning. The garage prolongs a mother's profane tirades, and an attic becomes the conduit for better father-son communication, even after it seems too late. Matthew Hinton is a playwright, poet, editor, and educator. He received a master's degree and MFA from the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre, and he serves as coordinator of writing at Misericordia University. He's also worked with Gaslight Theatre Company in many capacities over the years. Matt Hinton stopped in at the WVIA studios with a copy of his collection, Playroom, in hand, just issued by Blue Moon Plays. And it would be natural for us to ask about young Matt making plays in his bedroom or his schoolroom, perhaps. I suppose I was kind of a precocious kid. I enjoyed theater. I guess my earliest experiences with theater being on a stage in kindergarten and then again in the third grade. But there were certainly moments in between where there were theatrical moments that I have memories of. But maybe a very defining one was when I had a role in a play in the third grade where I was I was the mayor of a town. It was a Christmas play. It was one of those that, you know, the whole family comes and it really kind of doesn't matter what the kids say. Everybody sings a song at the end and everything's happy. And 
But I remembered very much getting into the idea of getting ready for that role and putting a costume on and thinking about where I would be and thinking about what my motivation is for this line, I guess. So I, I had a bug very early by that. And my parents encouraged me in that. And, you know, growing up in this area, we are rich with community theater opportunities. So I pursued a lot more of that when I was in high school. Um, so it's, it's always had a role in my life. It's always been even a major part of, of my identity in some way or another. It's always been a major factor somewhere. So by the time I got to college and graduate school, it, it transformed itself into production and writing in ways that I hadn't really encountered before. I had built sets before for high school and done all kinds of different experimental stuff. But now I was really, we were doing more serious stuff. You know, I started going to King's College and we were doing Shakespeare and they had an ongoing yearly Shakespeare theater tradition that I suddenly was now a part of. And I had read Shakespeare before. It's why I wanted to be an English teacher. It's what I loved about theater too, but I had never gotten to perform in that. So that was a new milestone for me. And it got to challenge me in terms of language and what I would understand. How do I take something from the page now to the stage that I've, it's only lived on the page before this. So then that led to, you know, all the technical stuff. I've been here with David Reynolds before, and he's been there for some of my better moments of cutting my technical teeth on things. Anything that I learned in that way, I probably got a little bit more introduced to it, or he, he showed me something I never would have had the chance to, to do before, and that was as a student. So by the time I was considering graduate school, I was already teaching high school English. I knew I wanted to go back to school for something. I knew it had to be writing. And then I realized as I was filling out the application, it's playwriting, it's playwriting and, and a little bit of poetry, but mostly playwriting at Wilkes. And, uh, that's where I'm at now. Still, still playwriting. Sure. Poetry still happens. I write, I guess I write poetry in the morning and plays at night. That's what I say. Not only have you had a desire to help young people experience the joys and the rewards of encountering English literature in many forms, but also, you want to encourage individuals you know and don't know to write plays. Absolutely, yeah. So there are students that I've had at Misericordia University where I teach and work. And then there are some other young people that we've encountered just through Gaslight Theater Company who have been really creative voices that I know they've got something to say on the page. But I'm thinking specifically of people like Emily Halbing, who's somebody who has written some plays for the Playroom series, but she's also written some great plays of her own. She even had some plays put on outside of the typical local theater. They were at Scranton Fringe. She put on a show at Scranton Fringe completely independently. She did one of those storefront under glass shows, and it was wonderful. She really took the premise of the fact that they were behind glass and she ran with it. So to get young people to get new voices in this, too, has always been um, a very important part of, of my approach to theater. Theater is a collaborative art, so you should always be bringing in new, younger voices. It can't can't always be the same people doing Shakespeare, although that's great. I want to see someone else's take, or I want to see someone else not do Shakespeare. I want to see them do their work. And you have done that consistently through a series that you created, you envisioned. It was your yeah. imaginative idea. What if? Yeah. So this was at the graduate program at Wilkes, dreaming up a bunch of different ideas. I usually keep a notebook with me that I walk around, a moleskin notebook of some kind that I walk around with. And when ideas come to you, you know, write it down or you'll forget it or record it somehow or put it somewhere where you're going to refer to it again. So I was trying to come up with a bunch of different ideas. I realized I had all these short, different ideas. 
I like one acts. Uh, I like the potential that one acts have. We've talked about this before, but I just like the fact that if you're an audience member too, and you're bored with the play, now that hasn't ruined your evening. 20 minutes later, you have a new universe. You have a new play. You have new characters that are coming in. But I realized when I was thinking about all these things together that the problem with an evening of one acts is that you can't really get a full set. You can't really always, people who aren't necessarily willing to make that leap all the time or don't go to the theater all the time or just aren't familiar with it, to suspend their disbelief on a black stage with some minimalist set pieces, you might get lucky. But generally, you know, if you can make it a really full set, some that wow factor gets people as soon as they come in the door. If you've ever gone to a Broadway show or a really good really well-designed local production of anything. You notice it as soon as you walk in the room and you almost want to take a picture of the set. You're excited by the atmosphere, the mood that you're suddenly in. So I wanted to take those things and combine them. And I thought about this idea for Playroom, which it's kind of loosely based on the idea for how Durang wrote Naomi in the living room. So it starts in one room, but it's that same room, but maybe different universes entirely. So we can design a full-blown, we started in the kitchen, we designed a full-blown kitchen that first year, and we had seven or eight different playwrights writing plays for that kitchen. But they were different universes, different characters, different stories, different plot twists. Totally unforeseen things came out of that first initial actual trial of Playroom. So when, when my idea finally got to be acted out, when I, I, I graduated with my master's at that point, I was working on MFA, and I started talking to Gaslight about doing this. And they like the idea. It's inexpensive generally to do one acts. It's, it's good for the company in terms of, you know, these are new plays. So the rights are more about like we're debuting a work and it kind of becomes a great honor and privilege as a company to do that too, to know that you're debuting something. You tend to take great care with it. Not that we never took care with anything else, but um, when you know that the playwright could be right there, you want to give a great representation of their work and capture everything. And maybe even the things they didn't think of, you want to surprise them too. So you think about it a lot more as a director, as a producer, even as an actor. It's good for actors because they don't have to invest nearly as much time in memorizing lines. They get to be the star of a show for that 15 or 20 minutes. And then, as I said with the audience, they get to kind of cycle through a bunch of different things. And usually they have a few different plays. Sometimes it's hard to choose what their favorite was. And that's a real honor. That's a real feeling to, to know that you didn't just give people an evening that now they're going to talk about why they like this one versus that one on the way home. And it's going to appeal to a lot of people. So it works out. It works really well. Was it a foregone conclusion that there would be a garage later on, <laughs> that there would be more rooms in this house? So I knew that we would go through different rooms in a house because at one point, David Reynolds and a few other people at Gaslight certainly had asked me like, well, when does it end? When do we know what the end is? And I felt like the living room would be the last one because that's the most cliched room to write for an opening of a house. I get that from Mel Brooks from the producers, right? There's this lights up on a living room in New York. Like that's or on an apartment in New York. That sort of idea of just this cliched standard opening. You read a million one acts that start that way, lights up on a living room. And I felt like that would be the easiest and, and quickest one to kind of dash out. So that should obviously be the last, the least expected should come first. So um, kitchen was up there because I thought that was a really interesting kind of came at you on the side. A kitchen is, I don't know, always too faithfully or well represented on stage. I can't remember too many kitchen sets, you know what I mean? But you always see one off to the side somewhere that's supposed to be the kitchen, some cubby hole that an actor goes to with a light. I wanted to bring that front and center. 
Then we went to the bathroom because I like to you know, go up. I like to change the expectations and maybe to, to raise the stakes a little bit and maybe the risks. And surprisingly, it was a, a not very risky year for all the playwrights. Uh, most people played it pretty safe with a shower and a, and a toilet and all the other things that can come in and go in a bathroom. Then we went to, we went to the attic after that. Then we went to master bedroom. Then we went to garage. So garage was not necessary. We started getting to places. It's like, all right, how do we avoid the standard? You know, we've done a bedroom. We've done like a major suite bedroom. What do we do from here without making it cliche or repeating ourselves? So it became the garage. Then we went to the backyard, like kind of a back porch, backyard area, still a livable space, keeping it within house grounds, then the dining room. And then we ended with the living room. Each time you did not just say, okay, everybody right about the kitchen. You took on the challenge yourself. I liked the idea of at least giving some people a little bit of guidance to let them know what base things they might have, like major set ideas or entrances and exits. It wasn't necessarily to guide them in any way towards a, a certain story, but to just kind of let them know what was at their disposal in the room so that there were some major utilities. So when you have a kitchen, obviously you have a fridge, but I made a point of saying like the type of fridge that it was kind of like one of those locked door late sixties fridges. That's really kind of dangerous that they don't make anymore. And they used all of those different set ideas in ways that I never would have expected with that too. But it was also very important to me to keep the designer in mind in this, because that was the key element about one act plays that I always wanted to make real. So if it's got to be really fleshed out, it should be very clear to everybody what it looks like. Even if the universe is a hundred percent different, you can, you can still make that work. You just need the designer to really have a, have his feet grounded or their feet grounded just right. So I think that that gave everyone at least the same starting place. And you approached your own plays, maybe from the start, or maybe as you were going along, that you were going to follow characters in the same family or who were connected in some way. I think I didn't really fully appreciate that, that that's what was going to happen until maybe I had written the first one and I knew that I had something with the storyline or the way that the characters were playing out in the rehearsal and on stage. I was like, I need to know more about this family. There is more to them and I know that they're in there. So I made a choice at some point in that first year that I'm going to next year is going to be the same family. Now I need, I, we've seen the kids. Now I need to see at least one of the parents. So I wrote a play called rich is well-made that takes place in the bathroom. It's the father is just trying to get away from the family. It's his only alone time. And he uses it to eat a very large, very difficult sandwich, <laughs> like uh, every ingredient you could sort of imagine. And he, and he sits in the bathroom to eat that sandwich because no one will bother him there. But of course the world tries to bother him there in its own unique way. The other element that I realized would be a part of this, not just the family, but each one of these plays has some sort of supernatural element to it. That each one of these rooms has some, some sort of connection to the other or the weird, almost twilight zone inspired, not quite. You know, just things that are not necessarily explicable, but still have an an effect in that world, in their world that becomes an obstacle for them. So in the kitchen play, for example, that fridge that I mentioned is secretly a time machine that the son accidentally uses to become Sir Francis Scott Drake and discover the San Francisco Bay, right? I can't tell you how I got to there. That's a whole nother conversation, I'm sure. But each one of these then has its next element. So Rich is well-made. He's interrupted by some 
sort of hippie, a hippie trio of psychedelic color interpreters who tripped the light, literally tripped the light fantastic out of his shower. In the following play, in the attic, the sun is back, but he's been able to tap into the house's circuitry in the attic to create a pirate radio station that goes out at nighttime, and he also uses it to speak to his dead grandfather. He uses a Ouija board and some other elements and creates a talk radio show. So each one of these shows is in some ways a little bit part supernatural, yes, but they become a way by which some of these family issues get worked out. They're comedies, but they do have their sincere moments in which these families are, these family members are sort of coming apart or going back together again or passing each other and trying to, trying to connect. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's a question. Did you act in direct? What were you doing with each of them? Each year I was generally, I directed someone else's works as well. I, I tried to shy away from directing my own. Honestly, I wanted to see what other people would do with my work. I wanted to be surprised by it. So there were many times that I asked David or Brandy or someone else. uh, And, you know, very often the directors would come together and say, we wouldn't fight over it, but we would lay down like what we absolutely wanted to direct each year. So to have someone say to me, I really want to direct yours this year meant a lot to me. Um, So each one of these has their special moment or touch or something that I was definitely present for that I really enjoyed. In the final year, Home for the Holidays, which we did in the living room, we have, as, as a kind of a regular running gag since the very first one, the people who change the set get to do whatever little comedy that they want to do. One year, I was changing the sets pretty regularly in the garage. But in the final year, I got to change the sets as well. I got to do my own little, um, what I would call knee plays, like the little plays in between the plays. Uh, And mostly those are just moments for something comical to happen while moving a table off, you know, a funny line to say. And you partnered with somebody else who can help you take stuff off really quickly. and And you have a straight man and a funny man and it works out. So I definitely had a hand in each one of them, even if it wasn't finally acting in the end, it was moving sets around and still being, being a part of it in that way. There are a couple of years uh, in the last few years there where our terms had ended, Wendy's and my term had ended at, at Gaslight. I found that to be a really good opportunity to kind of also step back from the larger part of, of doing all the organizing of Playroom and letting someone else take that on so that way I could just focus on the writing and then go and be maybe fully surprised one year. So I got to enjoy that too, thankfully. Everyone was, and, and it just kept going. It was something that they were like, are we sure we want to end it? I'm like, it's really up to you. I don't want to keep writing set descriptions for it anymore, but you can keep it going if you want to. So th- there are other opportunities and other ways by which Gaslight, I think, has taken up and done shorter work stuff by PAL and uh, the podcast and some other fun things. So I think it became a great way to take our company from somewhere that it was, not that we were in a rut, but take it to somewhere that we always knew it could be. I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of these eight years, there were, I think, somewhere over 74, 75 new plays written. Most of the years had eight plays. So yeah, almost, uh, I think 75 new plays were written because of this series that had never existed before. Over a hundred actors had tread the gaslight boards wherever they were for each one of these years. It was a, a very successful audience turnout for most of them once we really got going. And I think by by our third and fourth year, we really had some great turnouts. We were in a couple of really great spaces to experiment with all this stuff with too. 
So in the end, it was successful as a theater creation endeavor, a broader theater creation endeavor beyond just, I could have just said, like, I just want to write my own one act plays. But for me, it was really important to create something that other people could create with too, because I, that's, as I said, that's what theater is about. It's, it's community. Did you take this then to an editor or someone you worked with at Wilkes? You know, it, it went through several different iterations before it got to where I was ready to start sharing it in this way. But I, I took it to an editor I know from uh, the Wilkes program, Jean Klein. I had done some editing work with her and, and for her as part of my graduate studies. I took a semester working and interning for Blue Moon Plays and Half Scripts. Uh, at the time, it was just Half Scripts. And uh, this is done through Blue Moon Plays and is available on halfscripts.com now. And the thing that has come along that's different, I think, since when I was doing that is there's a lot more digital availability now, too. So there is a hard copy version of this that I'm proud to have in my hands right now. But there's also these plays can be purchased individually for rights for a small theater company to do anywhere. So they can get the script digitally. It's not a matter of you need to send the script back and we need to take care. It's, you know, a lot of that old script work, right stuff doesn't need to happen anymore. The way a lot of theater companies are familiar or high school theaters are used to having it done. So there's some greater opportunity there, but uh, it was really taking advantage of that connection and saying like, Hey, is this something that you think Blue Moon would like to publish? And she read through it and she said, yes, of course. Uh, how, how have you not thought of this sooner? And it was a really great conversation with her about what the next steps were and getting them just compiled and designed just right. And um, as I said, it took me a couple of months just to make sure I had the scripts the way that I wanted them to be. There are performance script things that happen that you're like, oh, actually, that was a really good line change that they made. So I want to update some things and go through and make sure all the formatting is the way it should be. And she was really, really great. Jean Klein and, and all the people at Blue Moon were really great about working with me on my ideas for it. Let's go back to language and yeah. your passion for language. When you were writing these, were you conscious of a voice some voice that you hadn't written in before. Does this strike you as a series of plays that brought out a Matt Hinton language? Yeah, maybe. What an interesting question. I think I've noticed over time something that I, an exercise I love to do with language in regard to plays, and I talk to students about this very often is, and it doesn't matter what you're writing in, but this is a great exercise to do. If you're writing plays, short stories, whatever, Take whatever those characters are supposed to be saying and just isolate all of the lines of each of those characters if you can. Even in a novel, if you could take all the lines of that character or that narrator, whatever it is, and evaluate them front to back. So if I took all of the lines of the father, Rich, from one of these plays and just looked at his lines, do they sound like anyone else's lines? How do I know that those are his lines? What a great exercise to kind of examine what you've done with those characters. In going back through this and, and for the editing process, I noticed some subtle changes in the way the characters have maybe grown in the eight years, too, that I didn't anticipate. You know, writing from the mother's point of view, Carol, or the father's point of view, Rich, in this, maybe at the beginning would have been a little bit more cliched if I had opened. If the first play had had their voices in it, I would have had something very different going on with them. But it opened with two younger people, an older sister and a younger brother. And I'm an only child, so I don't have any siblings, but I, you know, I was writing in more of a language that worked for them. It was easier for me to access back then 10 years ago when I was first doing that. And then by the time I got to the last play, the predominant voices are the parents. So I found that to be a really interesting evolution. I did, I guess I didn't expect that and I'm not really processing it until you're asking me about this right now. 
But here we are, right? That's really uh, an interesting revelation. And also what's important to those characters has come out through those lines too. In some ways, some of the plays, uh, some of the kids and the children in the, the later plays might still seem a little fixed in their places. But by the final play, they've all, they've all grown, I think. And that was, it was important for me to close the idea of them being grown, which would make it all the more interesting to see them in kind of a very different order to me. You know, one other thing I love to play with on stage is time. And it gets repeated a lot in this. Each one of these plays has certain language markers, now that you mention it. Time is a repeated line. It's a refrain. 2% percentages of things, uh, you know, sort of parsing one's life out into certain little ways. And 2% of the time this happens, but most of the time something else happens. The idea of this sort of 2% average gets sort of laced in throughout. That was something that if you saw one of the plays and never saw one of the other ones, you might still say like, oh, that's interesting. That was an interesting line. But then if you start to see a few of them, maybe you remember over the years like, oh, they said time a lot last year, I think. You know, oh, this is an interesting through line. I don't know if any audience members caught on to that. I know a lot of the actors who were tracing it did, the directors did, uh, you know, my wife did, the people who were reading the scripts and giving me feedback noticed. So, you know, hopefully some people who saw it noticed that language through line too over the years. Do you, with a collection of plays, yeah. have book signings? What happens with oh, playwrights? Yeah, so, well, man, that's <laughs> what does happen with playwrights, Erica? What a great question, because a poet gets up there and they get to just say their poems or, you know, recite them. There's always some sort of signing. So I do, I have the, I, I've been honored to be asked back to Wilkes uh, as an, an alum on the publishing panel for our January residency upcoming. I think our own Julie Sedoni from WVIA, who is also from that program too, she went through the Wilkes program. She will be asking the questions. So at the end of that, there's usually, and of course that's a great sales spot. They always want to show off the works of, of the people who've gone on from the program and published something. So I'll have an opportunity there to maybe sign some things in early January. Matthew Hinton, playwright, poet, editor, and educator, speaking with us about his series of plays titled Playroom, published as a collection by Blue Moon Plays. And he will be able to talk about the process, sign the books, as part of the upcoming semi-annual residency of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes. January 6th through the 13th, and the alumni reading that will feature Matt Hinton and others is going to take place on Wednesday, January 11th at 6.30 in the evening at the Sordoni Art Gallery. So you can meet Matt and hear more about Playroom. We hope he'll have a chance to read something for us and also sign those copies. So it's Playroom, and it's issued by Blue Moon Plays. Matthew Hinton will take part in an alumni panel that's part of the Maslow Family Graduate Program in Creative Writing at Wilkes University on Wednesday, January 11th at 6.30 at the Sordoni Art Gallery. For more information on the web, wilkes.edu, wilkes.edu. 